Good morning. We are continuing again, unexpectedly, in our impromptu mini-series in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this slide is even impromptu, so you're welcome. I didn't make it, though. Um, You can thank, I I assume, Levi. Um, Yes, we're continuing again in Matthew 5, and I am really excited to be doing so. Um, Very excited. So, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you remember, two weeks ago when we started this little series, it was within the Beatitudes. And if you remember, Beatitude is, it really just means supreme blessedness. And so this sermon began with the Beatitudes, but the sermon itself is a bit like an inauguration for Jesus' teaching. He had been identified as the Son of God by God the Father after his baptism. He had been driven to the wilderness to be tested, and he had called his disciples unto himself. And as the crowds began to follow him and to become curious about who he was, in, at the start of Matthew 5, we see in verse 1 that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so, this is the most important thing to remember as you read the Sermon on the Mount. It's that there is a separation that happens between the disciples and the crowds. Jesus leaves the crowds and the disciples who are to be joined to him, who are taking up his call to follow him, leave the crowds to be joined with Jesus. This is what discipleship means. It's going where Jesus leads and remaining with him all the way. So this is utterly important to remember as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we, we read the Beatitudes in our confessional prayer. And we then last week looked at what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And how Jesus had directed those words to his disciples. It was if he had turned from the crowds entirely and said, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's not talking to the crowds, but to the disciples. And then he comes to verse 17. And this, I believe, just given the language in the, the temper of his teaching, I believe he's repositioned himself to speak both to the crowds and to the disciples. And here comes a teaching that then qualifies the rest of the sermon. His teaching, his introduction of his ministry and who he is as the fulfillment of the law. And so that's where we will be today. And so, if you will, read with me Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, 
until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, these truly are your words. And we acknowledge now that you are the living word. And as you stand seated, or stand above, seated also at the right hand of the Father, you are eternal. And as such, your words are as well. The psalmist wrote in, one, in Psalm 138 that you have placed above all things your name and your word. And so I pray today that we would submit ourselves to your teaching, that we would surrender ourselves to the majesty of your spoken word, that though heaven and earth may pass away, your words stand forever. You, King Jesus, are the Christ, and your words are law. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we that we would worship. We pray and ask that you would give us wisdom from above, that we would see you clearly. This is all for you, and your word is only for us in as much as we glorify you through it. And so would we taste and see your glory today? Would we feast on your word, for it is truly the bread of life. Please have your way among us. We are your people for your possession. It's in your name we pray, Christ Jesus. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Jesus Christ, the End of the Law. And the meaning of the word end is not what you think it is. So if you're a note taker, you may want to write that down because it will be pertinent later in the message. And as a note taker, I'm going to give you my subpoints. The first one is Christ, the true law. Christ, the true law. My next point is the law remains. The law remains. And finally, true righteousness. True righteousness. Christ, the true law. Jesus, immediately after declaring the disciples to be salt and light, sets the stage for the rest of the entire sermon. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus, who inaugurates the new covenant, is not destroying, destroying nor is he merely replacing the old covenant but he is truly fulfilling it. He mentions the law and the prophets. This is kind of like a catch-all term for the Old Testament, the, the covenant, the Old Covenant. Remember, though, at this point, 
There is no New Testament. They are living the New Testament. They are the New Testament, if you will. And so by saying the law and the prophets, it's a catch-all for the Tanakh. And that also you'll see replaced with just the law. It's any, all of the commands of the Old Covenant were considered the law, of course. And everything's pointing to the law in the Old Covenant. Everything, even the writings and the prophets. The prophets were reminding the people, reminding Israel of their failure to live obedient under the law. And that there was judgment to be had for their disobedience and their rebellion. And the prophets were calling Israel back to obedience always. That was their primary objective. There were prophetic messages concerning the future, but they were laced in between the primary message of Israel's return to the Lord and walking in faith-filled obedience. Same with the writings. Read the Psalms. Read the histories, and you'll see that they're replete with the encouragement and the command to return to the law, to live according to the law. Thus, the law is the center of the Old Covenant. It is the apex. But Jesus says here that I did not come to abolish it. Why would he teach that, I wonder? Why would he feel the need to even say it? There were many, many teachers, many rabbis that would come on the scene in this period in Judaism. And any of those that came and defied the law would easily be dealt with uh, in the religious court and would be tried and punished accordingly. Nor did many people assume that the Messiah was meant to replace anything. It was not an expectation that the Messiah would replace or abolish the law. But Jesus is setting the stage for what he's getting at. And this is completely contrary to the teachings of the religious leaders of the day. He's saying, look, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But to fulfill it. In becoming the fulfillment of the law, Jesus is also revealing the fullness of the law through himself. Both as the man, Jesus the man reveals the fullness of the law, and Jesus the living word, Jesus the logos, reveals the fullness of the law. As Jesus the man, we see that he alone, he alone has perfectly obeyed the law of God. There is no other who has followed the law to the utmost as Jesus did. Because of his perfect obedience, to Jesus alone belongs true righteousness. We see in other places in the scriptures that men are deemed righteous. They're declared righteous, but This righteousness is never intrinsic within themselves. These men are always declared righteous by God. And their righteousness is a foreign righteousness, always. It is something that is given to them. For instance, Abraham was counted righteousness because of faith. But who was the object of his faith? 
Who was the object of his faith? God was. Abraham was not looking within. No, he was looking to God and God's righteous standard. That's why in his testing, he chose to obey and grabbed quick the knife to kill his very own. Not because he thought he knew the best way. He had no self-righteousness in the matter. But in faith, looked to God completely for the outcome. And it was on those terms, it was on those terms, him looking to God in faith, that he was declared righteous. Again, within the Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, we see the themes of forgiveness and atonement throughout. There are some Psalms where David rightfully declares his righteousness, and then others where he, he mourns and laments at the sin within. And so the question is, which is it? Well, it's both. It's both. If you're truly righteous, if you have an intrinsic righteousness, you do not need forgiveness or atonement. But David and the other psalmists understood that their righteousness was not intrinsic, but it was foreign to them. It was given by God. It was given by God. And so Jesus, the man, walks completely obedient under the sovereign eye of his Father. And as such, Jesus himself is truly righteous. Truly. It is his righteousness. Also, as the man, Jesus fulfills the law in becoming the curse of the law. Two things satisfy the demands of the law. Two things. One is unstained righteous living. Well, we've all got a, an X on the box in that spot. None of us have the check. None of us have the pass. But two things satisfy the demands of the law. Unstained, righteous, holy living unto God. And two, payment for unrighteousness with a curse as a just consequence. At the end of the recording of the law in Deuteronomy, before Moses passes it on and establishes Joshua as his successor, we see this in Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, 
that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. The law demanded utmost obedience. And as a consequence for disobedience, death, death was given. And more so than that, as we see with the utter rebellion and rejection that Israel walked within, always leaving the Lord their God, always whoring after the gods of the nations, he gives them over to those nations. They are driven from the land as a display of God's righteousness, as a display of his wrath and his glory among the nations. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul is somewhat playing with words here. That reference is regarding someone literally being hanged by rope. That they were cursed cursed among men, and that was their just punishment. But he's playing with that theme and also hearkening to the curse that's due anyone who disobeys the law. Because it wasn't Christ hanging by a rope, but he hung on a tree, and in doing so, he became the curse for us. And so, Jesus, the man, fulfills the law, not only in his perfect obedience, but also in becoming the curse. And in only those two ways can he satisfy the demands of the law and completely fulfill them. If he had only lived rightly, if it was just his obedience, then it would only be sufficient for himself. It would only be sufficient for himself, and it would not be his to give to us. But because he was not only obedient, but then took on sin, took on our sin in the flesh, his obedience is now his to give to us. So in that way, in Jesus, both living completely righteous before the Father and in surrendering himself as a curse of the law, does he fulfill the law? Next, we see Jesus as the word, the logos. Not only does Jesus fulfill the law as man, but as the living word of God. His commands are the truest fulfillment of the law of God and become a standard of righteousness for the disciple. Jesus is the word of God, the logos. There is no shadow of turning with the Lord. Do you understand? There is no shadow of turning. His words do not contradict. Therefore, Jesus' teaching is not only consistent with the law, but it is the full revelation of the law. This is important. I think many in the modern evangelical church don't even read the law. This is a rhetorical question, but I'm going to ask it. How many of you regularly read the Old Testament and enjoy doing so? I remember early in my years of following Jesus, I was in college. 
And I remember grumbling and complaining, thinking, <laughs> we've got the New Testament now. What does it really matter? Like, done and gone. All I need is that fresh Pauline encouragement. <laughs> and then it struck me one day that the early church didn't have the New Testament. And yet, we see the Gospels and the Epistles replete with accounts of them studying the Scriptures, obeying the law of their Lord, and rejoicing in Jesus the Christ through the Word. How are they doing that? How? By reading the law. They looked through the law and saw that it served a purpose, and it was to reveal to them the Christ. Therefore, Jesus' teaching is entirely consistent with the law, and it is the true fulfillment thereof. This sets the stage, as I mentioned earlier, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The teachings that follow this, which we won't be getting into today, are truly law. For they come from the mouth of him alone who fulfills the law. The teachings to come come from the lawgiver. Jesus, the living word, is the law. And so here, as its fulfillment, Jesus steps in. And we're going to see this more hashed out in the next section. Jesus steps in. And he takes the place of what the law was intended to do. Because he is the fulfillment thereof. And so the disciples no longer interact with the law individually. But they only now interact with it through him. Because they have left the crowds and they have been joined to Jesus. So now their relationship with the law has fundamentally changed. But this does not nullify the law as we'll see. Verses 18 through 19 the law remains. The law remains. The law is eternal. The law of God reveals an eternal standard of righteousness to all. To all. As stated earlier, there is no shadow of turning with the Lord. Therefore, what has been spoken remains. What has been spoken remains. Luke records Jesus saying this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. At first, you might hear that and think, Jesus is indicating. He is indicating that the, the law is done with. That, it was, that the law and the prophets were until John. That would be John the baptizer. But that's not what he's really saying, is it? He's, he's marking a change, a change in covenant, a change in relationship and in sight to the law. But he wouldn't have said this, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He simultaneously marks the inauguration of the new covenant and upholds the righteous standard of God through the law. As a side note, the end of verse 16 there, this is Luke 16, verse 16. 
he says, look, the, in, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. In Matthew, it says it's been taken with violence. Side note, you will not accidentally obey God. You will not accidentally walk in righteousness. But it takes diligence. It takes vigilance to pursue the Lord your God. And that's why we see this picture of forcing your way into it. God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. There are conditions within the scriptures. And he's saying, it will be as if you are fighting to enter in. Because narrow is the way. And there are few who are on it. Take hold of it with violence. Do what you can to take hold of eternity. Do what you can to take hold of eternity. He, re he reiter reiterates what was said in Luke in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law is eternal. It is the word always. It will not go anywhere. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the law, that is the word of God, will remain. Now let's look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here, it would seem that Jesus commands that all of the law must continue to be obeyed for the disciple. In truth, that's exactly what he is saying. Is exactly what he's saying. In fact, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is upholding the standard of the law as true righteousness, and that obedience to the law is required. It is not optional. It's not optional. There is no mysterious, hidden meaning. What Jesus is saying is what he means. I think much of the modern church is in great danger for dismissing the law as something that has passed away. For something that has been replaced. That type of misunderstanding is injurious to one's salvation. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, states that the law must be upheld. Now, after hearing that, you may, you may have begun to feel anxious or perhaps uncomfortable or perhaps you think I'm preaching legalism. But, one, these are Jesus' words, not mine. Two, if you do feel that way, if you do feel that way, you have easily forgotten what was already said. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of the law, not us. It's impossible for us to fulfill it on our own. 
Therefore, our relationship to the law has fundamentally changed in Christ. For those of us who have left the crowds to be joined with Jesus, we no longer interact with the law on our own. But Jesus has stepped in to fulfill it fully. Therefore, we relate to the law only through him now. In Galatians 3, Paul writes this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. It had direct, direct mastery over us, or it was supposed to. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Some of you know that term as tutor. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law, like a tutor, was meant to train us for godliness. But because of sin, it was a harsh and a strict tutor. Yet, it is in its strictness and difficulty that it actually led us to Christ. Now that we have been brought to Christ, we belong to Him now through faith, and we no longer belong to the law. In A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, he talks greatly about this particular topic throughout the work. He doesn't actually reference much of Galatians, but he talks about the difference between legal convictions and spiritual convictions, legal convictions being those that stem from the law, and say that it always starts there, that one will not become spiritually convicted or have spiritual conviction until you have first been convicted by the law, but yet it can't end with the law. And we see this within the Old Testament. He gives examples such as Balaam, the false prophet, and Nebuchadnezzar. They were all struck in fear. And yet it never led to their salvation. They would even praise God outwardly. Nebuchadnezzar did this. Read the book of Daniel. And yet, still in pride, the Lord would judge him. The Lord would judge him. In fact, the whole book of Daniel, there's this theme going on. I, I just read through it recently, so I picked up on it not too long ago. Every time a king is addressed by uh, an inferior, a, a subordinate, they say, O king, live forever. Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted his glory to last forever. Even Daniel did it. It seemed like to be a, a legal formality of sorts. And yet when Daniel prays, he acknowledges that it is only God who lives forever. Only God who lives forever. And in Daniel 12, the last chapter of the book, it says those who turn many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. It is only God who lives forever. And he, he will only share his eternality with those who have turned to him in righteousness. Nebuchadnezzar never saw that. Neither did many false prophets. They came under legal conviction at the sheer magnitude of God's power and his might and even his holiness. But they never saw afterwards his grace and his love, his amiableness, his loveliness, his godliness. And therefore, 
Legal conviction brought them to a point, but it could take them no further. This is what the law does. It is a tutor. It is meant to bring us to Christ that we might in desperation see Him. But listen to this. Our belonging to Christ and our relating to the law through Him does not nullify the law. It does not nullify the law. It does not make it void. So then the question must be asked, how then do we relate to it? Well, I've already said that our relation to it is now only through Christ. It is legalism to try to approach the law on your own. This was the error of the Pharisees, as we'll see. They tried to find a righteousness within themselves. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says, I'm the fulfillment of the law, and the standard remains. But the disciple is the one who has left the crowds and has been joined to Jesus. And so they now see the law through Christ and in Christ. But as I said, our belonging to Jesus and our relating to the law through him does not nullify the law whatsoever. Because for disciples of Christ, we are fulfilling the law by upholding the law of Christ. Because Christ's law is the fulfillment of the law. How many times can I say the word law? (laughs) That's a joke. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. We are fulfilling the law by upholding the law of Christ. Because Christ's law is the fulfillment of the law. That's the answer for the disciple. And it always has been the answer, should you belong to Christ. Nothing is nullified. Nothing is made void. The standard remains. And it's a picture for us still. And I'll explain a little bit later how it's good for the disciple to live under the law. But it does not have power or control on us as it once did. It is no longer our tutor if we have truly been joined to Christ It can still instruct us, and it should. But if we have met Christ in faith, He, He is our connection to the law now. And yet, it's still not nullified. I just explained why it's not nullified for the disciple. What about for the non-believer? The law still, to this day, functions as a tutor for those who do not belong to Christ. In 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8, Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If you didn't catch that, he's saying that the law is actually upholding the standard of the gospel. 
that the law to the, to the non-believer, to the one who is outside of Christ, is still upholding the righteous standard of God, and it is in keeping with the gospel. Thus, when Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law remains. But for us who belong to Jesus, the curse has been lifted. The condemnation has been paid for. We walk faithfully in obedience to Jesus, and as we do that, we fulfill the law completely. But to the unbeliever, the law remains, and it will remain, because it is the word of God eternal. It is good for them to be convicted by the law, for the law is a tutor that will lead them to Christ. There have been many teachers and theologians over the years, centuries even, that have aimed to parse out the law so that we can best understand it as Gentile Christians. And many of these writings, I don't want to spend too much time here, are helpful. One of the most common divisions is to take the law and to... Divide it into three components. Ceremonial, which would be pertaining to the sacrificial system, right? The ceremony of the temple. Civil law, which was understood as, you know, the law of the land for Israel. And, of course, the moral law, which the sum of the moral law, you could look to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And it it is helpful, but I, I don't think it's the best to view it that way completely. Here's why. Every single law to Israel had a moral component. Every single law. Their religious practices had moral consequences. Their civil practices had moral consequences. And while our relationship to those particular laws has indeed changed, we don't offer sacrifices because Jesus has fulfilled truly and completely the sacrificial system. Right? And yet, they are for our good. All of the law is for our good because it instructs us in godliness. It reveals to us the heart, the character of God, and how his ways are higher. Jesus is not mincing his words when he says that not an iota, not a dot, is going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And yet, and yet, take heart. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. To the unbeliever, oh, excuse me, to the disciple, you now belong to Christ. You must uphold the law in Christ. In fact, in Christ, you will uphold the law. It is by design. There is no other option. 
If you walk in Christ, you are upholding the law. If the law is a terror to you, then perhaps, perhaps you pray and ask the Lord where you are in error. But the law, the law will be upheld by those who walk faithfully in Christ. The law remains is, and is eternal because Christ remains and is eternal. It is his word. To the unbeliever, the law is always the standard of God's righteousness, and the law must be to them a strict and harsh tutor, that in humility and in desperation they may be brought to Christ. Finally, verse 20, my third point, true righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees, as we'll see, they're they're a marker of sorts. Verse 20 reads, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, they became a marker for the disciples, a standard, but not a standard to get to, but a standard to surpass. Throughout the, second, excuse me, throughout the second temple period, Pharisaic Judaism was a popular sect among Israel. It wasn't the only one, but it was certainly one of the most populars, popular sects. Pharisees strictly held to the written Torah, the oral Torah, the prophets and the writings, whereas the Sadducees only held to the written Torah. But this was also problematic for the Pharisees. They held to the oral Torah. That's what they called it. It was really just traditions that were passed down orally. They held the oral Torah so high that they would at times reinterpret parts of the written Torah in order to justify obedience to the oral Torah. And it, it, was, it was these men who were the primary religious teachers of the day. So with this, with this, with verse 20, Jesus is saying two things. First is that, The obedience of the Pharisees and the scribes is still insufficient to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do not look to them as the standard, okay? It's insufficient that even in aiming to the utmost to uphold the law, their righteousness is insufficient. I think at this point in the sermon, that's not hard to understand. We've... We've gone over that no one can fulfill the law completely except for Christ. And the Pharisees certainly cannot fulfill the law despite their strict adherence to it. And then the second point he's saying, the second thing Jesus is getting at is this. Many of the Pharisees, as we see in the Gospels, had an improper view of the law. They viewed it as a means to their own self-righteousness. Rather than looking to God in faith through the law, they aimed to become masters of the law. This is not the way of the disciple. The disciple must see God's standard, be humbled in worship. In view of the law, the disciple must entrust himself to Christ. Again, there's no mincing of words. Jesus makes it very explicit that in order for one to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be more righteous than these religious teachers. So if you strive for this righteousness in the same way that the Pharisees did, you will fail. You will fail.
In Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He's playing with that word again. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He's saying, if you can't abide by all of the law, if you cannot fulfill it completely, then cursed, cursed be you. James makes this point a little more clearly. He says, in chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If you've broken one law, you are a lawbreaker because God's righteous standard has no exceptions. This is why the Pharisees were not getting into the kingdom of heaven. At least those who did not look to Christ and entrust themselves to him in faith. We do see some Pharisees do that. There were a number of Pharisees who believed on Jesus as the Christ. But the majority of his interactions with them, they were proud in their understanding of the scriptures. They thought their hermeneutic was perfect and they taught as much. There's only one way to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Many of them in good will and with a clear conscience believed they obeyed the law fully. But he says they're not getting in. There's only one way to be more righteous than the Pharisees and thus enter the kingdom of heaven. And that way is through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, Paul was, actually, Paul was a Pharisee. Okay, he was trained by Gamaliel. And in Romans, he's alluding to that fact. He doesn't mention them by name, but I would almost promise you that he's thinking of the Pharisees. In Romans 10, he writes, Brothers, my heart's desire in prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, do you see that? They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the title of my sermon. It's not coincidence. That word, end, I think that the English translators chose that word because it's in keeping with a lot of the language Paul uses in the letter to the Romans in terms of the one who dies is no longer bound to a covenant, just like if you're married and you die, well, you're no longer married. If you know, the other spouse is no longer married. He uses that, that uh, illustration in Romans 7. And so there's this ending that takes place. And that's really what Paul's talking about in terms of the ending of the law's rule and reign over the believer and the curse in that rule and reign. And so I think the English translators chose that word. They chose to translate this particular word as end. But it also has another meaning. And this is, in my opinion, the best meaning. The word is telos. 
It's where we get the word Jesus says on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. Telos, it means goal, goal. It was the objective, the prerogative. So in that, in that vein, we read this as, for Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law, the whole time, is pointing to Jesus. He is the goal. He is the goal. Therefore, for you who belong to Christ, for you to look to the law on your own accord, it, it's a terrible task, and it will, it will not lead you to real righteousness because it's not according to knowledge. But those who see the law and let it take you and draw you and lead you to Jesus the Christ, you will see true righteousness. And the law will be good to you. It is why the prophets of old, such as David, could rejoice in the law and that they were glad in it, that it was good to them because they knew, they knew that though they failed in it, it was a right and good standard because it revealed the very heart of God. Therefore, Christ is the end, that is the goal of the law for righteousness. True righteousness is only found in him. He is the fulfillment of the law, truly. Jesus has been and still is the entire point of the law. And the law's prerogative has always been to bring people to Christ. This righteousness is foreign to us, but given freely to us from God. It is ours by grace through faith. This righteousness is not the result of works so that no one can boast. As we conclude, I just want to reiterate a couple points as we bring this to an end. For those of us who have left the crowds to be joined with Jesus, God's righteous standard has not changed, nor will it ever change. Yet, because we are now hidden in Christ through faith, his obedience is our obedience. Our disobedience was placed on him, in him becoming a curse, and his righteousness is now our righteousness. As we obey Christ, we obey the law completely. For Christ truly is the fulfillment of the law. To us now, the law is both a sober and a sweet reminder. This I want you to really hold on to. It is both a sober and a sweet reminder. The law wakes us up from spiritual slumber and reminds us of the holiness of our Savior and the depth of our depravity. It is also sweet in that after we are awakened afresh to our poor and wretched state, we see the magnitude of our Savior's mercy towards us. The law is both a sober and sweet reminder to the believer. For those of you who are still seeking to obtain a righteousness of your own, 
you will never find it. Because of sin, the law is strict and harsh and will always be burdensome to you, reminding you of your complete inadequacy to be good or to live right. That is, until you let it lead you to the only one who truly is righteous. The only one who would take your stead under the wrath of God. The only one who calls out to you in mercy and says, follow me. Let's pray. We praise your name now, Lord Jesus. You are our hope. You are a mighty tower of strength and righteousness. And we surrender ourselves to you. Without you, we would be crushed by the weight of righteousness and wrath from an almighty God. But because you became a stumbling block, because you are the cornerstone, our hope is secure. Our salvation is made real and is ready for us to take hold of. I pray that we would be found diligent to walk in your ways, to surrender to your words, that we would rejoice at your law, that your word would be sweet to us. It would be a bread that satisfies and that it would be a wine that tastes sweet. Lord, give us taste buds in our soul that we might hunger and thirst for more and more of you. Forgive us for our misgivings and our naivety in regards to your word and to your law. And I pray that we would rejoice at the full counsel of your word because you, Christ Jesus, are the goal of the law for righteousness. We entrust ourselves to you today and forevermore. It's in your name I pray and ask all this. King Jesus, amen.